Good morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. So glad you're with us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way. Golly, guys, we're going to be all over the place. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 is a good one to go to, but it's not till like the end of the sermon. I think we're going to spend a lot of time in Psalm 132. I mean, like it's all written down. I know what we're going to do, but I don't know where to tell you to go. So, you know, good luck there. But uh, if you have a copy, turn or tap. If not, we are going to have all those words on the screen for you, and we'd love to give you a copy of the Scriptures on your way out. If you don't have a modern English translation of the Bible, it's a great way to engage with God's Word. It's surprising how understandable it is when it's written in a way you can understand. So we'd love to gift you one on your way out. Listen, we uh, started last week again a new series here, Men, Women, and God. We're talking about what it is to understand our identity, gender, what it is to understand how we love, sexuality, the way our culture butts heads with Scripture. We kind of mentioned last week, it's the truth, I don't know that our culture butts heads too much with it anymore. I don't, I don't know that our culture even asks the questions that we're trying to answer anymore. So it's a lot to figure out. There's a lot to work on and work with. Now, the last week, I've been getting some texts, some stuff, some news stuff emailed to me. Very scared about some of the things our new president is maybe pushing. Stuff that we pushed against last week that, that the scripture pushes against. Some stuff lawmakers are poised to either perpetuate or increase gives some of us nightmares. But I'll tell you, if you've been reading the Old Testament with us, you know, it's, it's hard to get people to jump into the Old Testament daily. And uh, the reading plan that we did started with Joshua, which is hard. Joshua has a lot of, like, difficult questions about how God used the people of Israel to, like, violently depose the people in Canaan. But Joshua's not as hard as judges. Uh, judges actually did send, I got text messages from people saying, like, hey, I can't read that before bed. Like, then I do get nightmares. Like, the nightmares they get, you know, the kind of, like, quote-unquote, you know, dramatic way of talking about concern about the economy or whatever, and you say nightmares. No, people were getting literal, actual nightmares from reading Judges, going to sleep, and then waking up like, oh, the Bible, oh, oh, you know, it's too scary. Because it is. In the book of Judges, we get a clear picture, because the Bible doesn't pull punches, a clear picture of the human condition. And the damning sentence that repeats throughout the book is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So before we go even further in defining the positive categories that we have biblically for gender and sexuality, for who we are, identity, how we love, we have to take, I think, at least one more week to look at the big issues at play. Because I think part of why we have been somewhat ineffective is that we're shooting at the wrong thing. Symptoms and disease are not the same thing. We have to think the way that the Bible thinks. And as you get into Judges, you see some awful stuff, but you see stuff that's reflected today. We need to see the way that the Bible diagnosed what was going on so that we can have the solutions the Bible has for the problems that we really do have. 
So let's look at Judges for a minute. This, again, is where we're going to be flipping around everywhere. There's a story in Judges. It's the same sort of repeated cycle. It's like a drain. You're going down and down and down. The people of Israel, after Moses and Joshua, then immediately start to follow the gods of the, the people of Canaan. So, so if you're new to the Bible totally, God has created this people through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then the 12, then they're in Egypt, then they become a great number of people, then God, through Moses, takes those people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They go across the wilderness. Man has fallen from heaven. They're going to go into the promised land. They rebel against God. He puts them back in the wilderness for 40 years. And then Moses dies. Joshua takes control, and he's the leader now. They go into the promised land, the place where God promised. It's not that complicated. Where God promised the people would have land. Promised land. They go across the Jordan into the promised land. The problem with the promised land is it's already got people. And the people in the promised land already worship. They just worship gods that aren't God. And again, you can take it all the way back to Genesis, but, but the way we worship not God is by worshiping something that allows us to worship ourselves. I give you some tip of the hat so that you allow me leeway to go and do whatever I want to do. That's what it was to worship an idol. Uh-oh. We see that already in our hearts. And you get into the judges. The judges are called, the book of Judges is called Judges because the people of Israel will start to worship the gods, plural, not God, gods of Canaan, of the people that were supposed to be the people they were deposing, supposed to be the people that they were showing the world was not following God like Israel was following God. But instead, Israel turns from their worship of God to the worship of these idols. And then God allows disaster to happen to Israel. After time, they'll cry out in repentance. And so God will send a person to come and bring salvation. These were the judges. They, they turn, they repent, and then it's not long after, they start doing what's right in their own eyes again. And they swirl down the drain. You get to a point towards the end of the book where you have a son who steals a bunch of money from his mom. She proclaims a curse on whoever stole her silver. It's very like Lamech, like we talked about in Genesis. She pro proclaims this curse. And then the son comes up and says, listen, Ma, that was me. I, <laughs> I stole your silver. So then she praises God that her son brought the silver back and takes about a fifth of it and gives it to a silversmith to create an idol. He carves an idol and gives it back to the family. The family then takes it, puts it among the household gods, and they all worship together. And in the middle of that story, the guy who's writing Judges yells at us, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And if you know God's law, you realize how awful it was that that's what Israel was doing. Then, whether you know the Old Testament law or not, you're just a human with a heartbeat. You read the next story and you want to vomit. Because in the next story, this guy's traveling to go and get back his concubine who left him. I don't know why she left him, but she left him. She went back to her dad's house. So he goes out to try and find her. He gets her. He's talking to her. He's able to woo her back. They're going to go home. On the way back, they stop in this place called Gilboa, Gilbea. Gibeah. Gibeah. I don't know. Old Testament. Whatever you want to do. Gibeah. And the men in the city try to take and rape the man. And instead, he sends out his concubine. He wakes up the next morning. They violated her until she died. 
So he cut her apart and sent the body parts all over Israel as a way to communicate to the other tribes what had happened. The other tribes gather in war against the tribe of Benjamin that did this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Israel has now become Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you see it? I don't know how well you know the Old Testament. That's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why it was such a big deal that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah had risen up, risen up in this awfulness, this stench before God. And he pulls Job out of it, or not Job, he pulls uh, Lot out of it, but destroys it. Then here we are in Judges, and what is this sentence? What is this story? It's, it's that they don't have a king, they do what's right in their own eyes, and what's right in their own eyes? Is it a variety of worship and kindness that just doesn't give as much regard to Yahweh? Or is it violence and perversion? It's absolutely terrifying. Now, what do you do when you read that story, go to sleep, have a nightmare, wake up, and the comfort you want to be comforted with isn't there? Because there's similarities between what you just read and the world that you see around you. I hope you're uncomfortable. When I said that we have to, we have to get at the root issue, yes, homosexuality is wrong. Transgenderism is wrong. But the Bible doesn't go after it in the same way because the Bible is going after something further in. You don't read that story in Judges and hear them say, like, let me tell you why the tribe of Benjamin was wrong. We know they were wrong. The indictment comes that everybody did what was right in his own eyes. You go to Romans, and Paul is putting together the whole picture of why we need a Savior. And he says in his big, final, nail-in-the-coffin moment of his argument... There's no fear of God before their eyes. They do whatever they want to do. Proverbs. When you look at the Proverbs and just try to read it and understand the, the riddles of the wise, what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's no fear of God. There's no wisdom in them. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. What are Moses and Solomon and Paul saying? We got to go further down. There's a poison further in and further down that sprouts the thorns that we're seeing all around us. No king, no fear of God before their eyes. Before we go further into the positive aspects of gender and sexuality, we need to understand further our posture in our current rebellion against God in those subjects. There's grave sin out there, but before we can get out and engage it, we have to understand what it is really and then vomit, see it in ourselves. That's the only way for us to be the true solution. So 
Let's keep reading in Scripture. After you get through Judges, you have this moment, this spot of light in Ruth. And if you're going through, we're doing an Old Testament reading plan right now. If you're reading it with us, then you probably had that moment where you're like, oh gosh, I don't know if I can keep going here. Judges, woo! Then you get to Ruth, and you're thinking, oh great, here's this story. It's only four chapters, and it's got, maybe if you know a little bit about the story, you're thinking about Ruth and Boaz, yeah? Great, here's like the good news, or the good version. (laughs) If you're not familiar, see if you think it's a good story. Ruth is the, Naomi is part of a family in Israel. There's a famine. Oh, great. You know, already a good story, right? There's a famine, and the people of Israel are so starving that this little family leaves and goes and lives among the Moabites. There, the woman, her husband, the two sons, the two sons get wives. Then the husband and the two sons all die. Ready? It's a great story. The husband and the two sons are all dead. Then one of the girls goes back to her family. The other girl stays with Naomi, and they go back to Israel. That other girl is Ruth. Sad, scary, and yet the love that Ruth has for Naomi, the love that Ruth has for Naomi's God, the faithfulness, and then God's provision. Because Ruth, through some strategic moves of Naomi on a threshing room floor in the night, gets a husband. This guy Boaz redeems her. And yet, the great culmination of that story, the way that we get good news from the story of Ruth is that Ruth's and Boaz's son was Obed. It says in Ruth 4, 17, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, grandson, has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, for he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Then right after that, they restate it with a longer genealogy, saying louder and louder, No, seriously, our solution is David. Why? They, we need a king. The cure for our sin is not just our repentance. Yes, we need to repent, and we need this leadership. We need a good king. As they go back to following the king, as they go to following David, the people flourish. So am I making an argument for monarchy? Of course not. Catch up. We're talking about your soul. But if you understand the story, you understand our desperate need for a king. Psalm 132, all the Psalms are written, a lot of them are written by David. They're talking about all kinds of different stuff. In Psalm 132, they're singing about the king and what it's like when they have a good king. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. That's what happened when David became king. Yeah, there's all kinds of ups and downs, and yes, you have to read it. It's a long story, but under King David, being a man after God's own heart, the people of Israel come back to God and flourish. They have a beginning of uh, an answer to, a satisfaction in these, these promises of, 
of having their bread, having this salvation, having this joy. You can think of David dancing in his little linen ephod as the, as the Ark of the Covenant comes back into Jerusalem. Joy. And there's some weird imagery here, talking about a horn sprouting for David. Hey, I don't know, but what it's describing, it's talking about strength. It's talking about a stag that begins to grow those horns, that begins to show that thing that will allow it to fight and project that dominance. A lamp that's prepared for his anointed, a, a light that's going to go out from his anointed into the world, enemies defeated, and a crown firmly placed and shining. But who's it talking about? If you go back a little bit in Psalm 132 to 11 and 12, it says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. The story continues, and really, though David shows us a clear picture of what could be, having a king in Israel did not solve their problems. David was great, Solomon was okay, and then immediately they fall already done too much like Old Testament survey stuff. I can't keep going, but I, I want you to understand it. I wish that I could take time to walk through what's going on in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel as you see that the nation of Israel, even under their kings, Israel, Judah, even under their kings, continues to rebel against God. We need a David, but we need a David who really fixes our true problem. You finish the Old Testament, you get to Matthew 1, the very beginning of the New Testament, and it's screaming through this genealogy that Jesus is that son of David. Jesus is that son of David. You go through the Gospels and you have these people shouting out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He goes in this triumphal procession. They're laying down these uh, palm branches. Why? It was a sign of, a symbol of their understanding that he was David, the one who would fulfill the promises to the ancestors of David, the king who would finally come to reign so that chaos would no longer reign, the king that would finally come and the people would have peace and begin to prosper. When there's no king, when there's no fear of God before their eyes, there's carnage, there's sexual carnage, there's relational carnage, there's societal carnage. But when there is a king, a perfect king, the perfect King, the perfect go-between of God and man, the perfect example, protector, provider, and judge, when there is that king, then these promises can come true. You have to see this. We have a king. Again, I'm not trying to make a political king. I'm telling you that we have a king. We have access to the solution of the problem, no fear of God before their eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We have the solution. The solution in the Old Testament was a good king, a really good king. The solution in the New Testament is that good king, Christ. So in the minutes that we have left, I want you to think quickly and clearly about how that king is teaching us to engage in this world of chaos. How that king is teaching us to go out and push out the boundaries of his kingdom into the world. You ready? Philippians 2, 3 through 11. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now that sounds real Bible-y, doesn't it? Oh, we're going to be selfless and we're going to serve other people. We're going to try and humble ourselves. Yep, sure, that sounds very Christian. But look at where he grounds this argument. We're not doing that because it's a vaguely good thing to do or a positive kind of God-sounding thing to try and do. We're doing it because this is Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in being part of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. If we have Jesus as our king, he gives us a disposition and a mission. And here's your disposition. Here's the way that we are supposed to act before the world. You ready? Humility. Service. Self-sacrifice. Not ambition or conceit. And what does that undo? That undoes the pride that says, I'm king, not God. The fearlessness that says, I make my choices, not God. What it is to be a follower of Christ is to engage in that level of humility. Man, I think a lot of us can hear that and go, sure, got it. Absolutely. And then walk out of here and just keep doing exactly what you've been doing. But you're missing it if you do that. You're missing it totally. If, you, if this doesn't correct you, if this doesn't reduce you, if this doesn't build you into the image of God, you're missing it. See, from the beginning, we put on our own version of a crown. In the beginning, in the garden, we had to make it out of fig leaves. But all through Scripture, we've been trying to do what's right in our own eyes, to put away our fear of God and make ourselves the gods to be feared. But once we become his, we have to give that crown up. And how amazing that God sent us the example, not of just dominance in order to show that he's king, but to show us the positive example of what is so beautiful about giving up that selfish ambition and conceit and, and pursuing that level of humility that even God himself being found in the form of man took off his crown, handed it up higher and said, no, no, God's God. Is that what we're doing? That's his disposition. That's his servant's prescribed disposition, that humility. And what's our mission? See, he gave up that crown and he accepted another. If you know the story of Christ, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Go home and read the last couple of chapters of any of the Gospels and read the crucifixion story. What's the imagery that they give to Jesus as they mock him before they kill him? 
They call him a king. They give him a crown of thorns. They put him in purple before they beat him after they scourge him. And then when they hang him on a cross on high before his people, they put above his head, here is the king of the Jews. And they put it up in multiple languages. They knew more than they were saying. And God allowed it because he's showing us how it is that we are to live in this world. That is your king. What the Romans said in irony to make fun of the Jews, we, understanding the fullness of his mission, accept and accept totally. You are being called to die to yourself. You are being called to a drastic fight for humility. Last week when we talked about 2 Timothy, when we talked about the position, the, the way that we're going to talk to other people, gentleness, but also truth. The only way that you're going to do that, to really, really do that, is to have the humility that allows you to then say to someone, that's not what the king really wants. Man, you look out in our culture, you see people that are, that are flopping all over that, that idea of, I'm God. I'm going to do what's right in my eyes. Nobody can, can impinge upon my choice. And on one side, it's a radical, sexual, identity-based sort of freedom. On the other side, you see people storming Capitol buildings and doing all kinds of wildness. Christians are not called to be some sort of immobile middle. We're called to show how everybody needs to reject pride and accept that God is God. And now my mission is to follow a king that had to put thorns in his head and nails in his arms in order to do what God had called him to do. So who is your king? It is only as we accept that radical kind of humility that we're going to be able to get out into the world and really change it. Yes, I do want you to call your legislators. Yes, I do want you to have conversations with people who radically disagree with you, but the only way you're going to be able to do it is not as a Pharisee, it's as a follower of Jesus. Your mission is to pursue Jesus' mission, which is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You want to go any further in a series on men and women and God? You have to remember what we've been saying from the beginning, what Scripture has always been saying, which is, you're not God, He is Humility, disposition of humility. And our mission is not to go out and make the world like we remember it used to be. Our mission is to go out and make the world into followers, disciples of Jesus. And as we go about that, we do that in the confidence that God is going to bring about victory. Why? He's already done it. 
Jesus goes to the cross and he dies, but he doesn't stay there. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you want to change the world? It happens right there. As we pursue the mission that God has given us in the humility and disposition that he has modeled for us with the true king, we are assured the victory. So I pray that you'll come back next week and continue to hear the stuff that we're going to talk about. And we are. We're going to talk about it. Here's what a man is. Here's what a woman is according to Scripture. Here's what marriage looks like. Here's what singleness looks like according to Scripture. But you just have to understand what God has made us to be in this cultural firestorm. If we will, man, if we will, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go. If we will, we will have that victory. And listen, hey, if you're new to Hope Church, I don't always come out here like screaming at people. Usually it's kind of nice. And I was thinking to myself, is every sermon supposed to be like, you know, beating people? (laughs) Aren't some supposed to be like giving good food? Listen, I hope that it feels that way when you think about who this God actually is and who this King actually is. But, you know, there's going to be times where we have to address our sin too. So I hope you'll come back. Give us another chance. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do ask that the overall story of your word, the message of your scripture would hit us and hit hard. That you've called us to live in humility as your people, as your servants. And the only way for us to get out there and really change the world, a world that really needs a lot of change, is to have the humility to know my biggest problem is me. My only solution is Jesus. Lord, if we will see that, if we will admit that, then we can go about the work that you've called us to do. Jesus, your your job wasn't to flip Rome upside down. Your job was to kill death itself and make a way for people to be saved and become your followers. And as they did, Lord, they did flip Rome upside down. And I'm praying for the exact same thing to happen, Lord that we would set our eyes not on things outside of your kingdom, but on the things of your kingdom. And that as we do that, Lord, you will bless us with a society that flips upside down. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.